0: Critical race theory claims to be addressing the legacy and prevalence of racial injustice in the United States. At the same time though, it is dominated by ideas that we could consider appalling and some even consider racist. So how does one engage with such a movement? How does one address the people who are attracted to critical race theory because they want to see a world where racial injustice is addressed my name is Nikos Sotirakopoulos I'm a visiting fellow in the Ayn Rand Institute and with me is Onkar Gatte a senior fellow at ARI you are watching the new idea live the podcast of Ayn Rand of the Ayn Rand Institute hi Onkar hi Nikos so we spent with Onkar 16 weeks in a module by the Ayn Rand University called The Road to Critical Race Theory, trying to understand this the phenomenon of critical race theory and what gave rise to it? What were the ideas that gave rise to it? And we thought this is important because suddenly critical race theory went from being a fringe academic theory to something that dominates the public discussion recently the governor of Florida actually passed a legislation with the telling title Stop Woke, and Woke sta- stands for Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act. And the point was to make sure that critical race theory is not, dis- is not taught to children. A conservative think tank de- describes it as reformulated Marxism. And James Lindsay. Uh, a researcher who has done a lot of uh, work criticizing critical race theory calls it quote a movement that leads to the dictate to a racial dictatorship so not anymore the dictatorship of the proletariat which was the marxist goal but this supposedly reformulated marxist movement wants the dictatorship of one particular race So, Ongar, why do you think it's important to discuss critical race theory? And why did it became so prevalent? And do people get it right?
1: It became prevalent in particularly in America's cultural wars. So with the rise of the Black Lives Matters protests, and especially with the killing of George Floyd, during The COVID pandemic, which led to there were a lot of people who had nothing to do because they were in lockdowns, forced out of working, out of being in school. When this happened, it I think the conditions were rife for or ripe that you could get massive protests, which is what we saw. And so it became it became unavoidable that there's this set of ideas that are very critical of America, of American institutions, and de- demanding radical reform. I mean, reform, I think you should put in scare quotes. Is it is it actually reform? But let's put it just radical change, to put it more neutrally. And then people, oh, we've got to pay attention to this. We have to think about this. Unfortunately, I think what usually happens in America is people don't pay any attention to what is happening on college campuses, what um, students are actually being taught. They only pay attention when it seeps past the university, out of the university's sort of grounds into the wider culture, into how people are being taught at businesses, Seminars you have to go through for racial sensitivity and so on. then people pay attention. But if you really want to understand the phenomenon, you have to understand its academic background, which is much more than just Marxism, to understand how we got to this point because otherwise it looks like just, okay, we had a pandemic and then people went crazy and we' get mass protests and so on. but that's like you don't have a genuine understanding if that's what you think happened. And so it's important to understand what actually Happen and the ideas that have been circulating
0: for decades. And this is what we will try to do today. So let's begin with with definitions. So I will give a definition of someone who is a critic of critical race theory and of someone who is a very vocal proponent of critical race theory. So let's begin by two from the founding, let's say, members of this framework or theory or a intellectual network which calls itself the critical race theory. And the definition is, it's from a book with the name Critical Race Theory by Delgado and Stefan. Quote, the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. And I have three comments here. First, it's a collection of activists and scholars. So immediately we see that this is a movement that does not only consider itself as isolated in the lecture theater or in the university, but wants also to put its theory in action. This is something that has attracted a lot of criticism for conservatives, although my view is that someone who has some ideas, someone who has a theory, it makes sense that you want to see it also enacted in praxis. But then engaged in in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. So studying and transforming. So again, the issue of social activism. And we notice here the element of power. So we're not talking anymore about racism as a phenomenon in terms of uh, being easily identifiable, for example, in a discriminatory legislation or or in a... in in a bigoted view in some people's mind. Races now is considered as a relation of power. And this can bring us to the discussion about what has been the intellectual progenitors of critical race theory. To also give a definition by someone who is is opposed to critical race theory, which is going to help us position uh, how the other side views it, again from James Lindsay, he defines it as, quote, a faith system founded on the belief that the fundamental organized principle of society is racism created by white people for the benefit of white people. And actually, this is a definition that for part of it, the part which says that society is based on racism and is this racism is almost... Structured almost architected by white people for the benefit of white people, this is something that the CRT scholars would agree, they wouldn't agree calling it a faith system. But uh, these two definitions provide some context on how to understand CRT societies created by white people for the benefit of white people, this needs to be dismantled and to dismantle this, we need to pay attention to relations of power. Onkar, any initial comment on the definitions before we go to the historical context of CRT?
1: Just the, the, the first one you're, that you're giving, it's important. It's a definition or a characterization of this as a movement. And as you were saying, so that you have a group of scholars who are counting on a certain academic context, a certain discussions and theories that have been put forth advanced and accepted in certain ways in the last, uh, however you want to put it, 50 plus year. Uh, I think we started in the course post-World War II really focusing on that period. It's And as you say, they're activists and scholars. So thinking of it as a movement, if these, I, it, it, you can think of them as thinking if this new approach and these new ideas are correct, we need to put them into action. And that you only get a movement like that because there's a background of ideas and theories that were challenging, as they would see it, sort of the academic status quo. And it's, we're replacing this. And then shouldn't this lead to real activism and transformation of society from worse to better? I mean, as they would characterize it, there's a question of that whether that is true of what they're actually doing. But so so that kind of de- definition or characterization is it is of it as a movement. Um, and it's important that that's what it, in part, like it's self-consciously a movement, which is part of why you see so much activism
0: around. It. Do you see this as a problematic in itself that they don't only want to teach these theories, but they want to see them enacted? Wouldn't we see, for example, wouldn't we say that, in, for example, an objectivist intellectual or a teacher would obviously want to also see the ideas of uh, reason and freedom being enacted, let's say in terms of uh, political reforms or being enacted in the in the social and political arena.
1: Yes definitely so that it's not true that every movement activist movement is a bad movement and one can think of to take one of the greatest in history one can think of America's founding fathers as they were interested in putting these ideas into action and into practice and to creating new government and a new relation between the the individual and his government. And it's, yeah, they didn't want to just write and talk about it, they wanted to see it
0: enacted. So let's see now, what was the historical context through which critical race theory evolved? So to understand this we need to go back to the 1970s. So the context is we have been post the civil rights act. So now any form of discrimination legal discrimination is uh, is now it's delegitimized and it's the the uh, the court the, 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 the supreme court has accepted that there should be no legal discrimination. Yet some legal scholars and some anti-racist claim that this is not enough for the eradication of racism. And they say, we look around and we still see racial injustice. Therefore, there must be something else in society except from what used to be discriminatory legislation and except from what used to be personal prejudice that makes sure that racism keeps uh, actually operating. And a legal scholar with the name of uh, of uh, Derek Bell, who is we would say the founding father of critical race theory, although back then when, Red, when Bell was writing in the 70s, uh, it wasn't called critical race theory, mentions his, I, his understanding of this progress in racial relations. And he says, whenever you see a progress towards supposedly less, towards supposedly more racial justice keep in mind that this is progress which is handed down by the white elite and this is an act not of benevolence not towards justice but it's an act towards making sure that this white supremacy is perpetuated and there's a name for uh, there's a there's a name for this idea and the name is that that the law is not neutral. So what does this mean in practice? It means that you might think that we went towards more racial progress, towards more racial justice, but actually now the situation is worse because you cannot actually see racism. So you cannot actually very easily see racism. So now to see racism, you have to be trained. You have to be able to spot racism in places that other people could not spot it. And why did it start from legal studies? Well, because the field of law was uh, was a field where historically you could see the results of racism having a spin-off effect even when the legal legislation was uh, actually not there anymore. An example is for redlining, which... in in simple terms, the state guaranteeing loans only to specific neighborhoods and excluding neighborhoods which were not white dominated. Now, this was not an official policy, but it was a policy that de facto put black people in a worse fate. So critical race theory said, we are going to be trained to see racism where other people cannot see it. And we're going to make sure that you should understand that whites have no interest in fighting racism because they've created this system of racial oppression and they want to perpetuate So this is the origin of critical race theory. And uh, Onkar, back to you. There is there is some merit there in terms of there were injustices, for example, with redlining. This was not directly a legal discrimination, but what is your overall take? in this of this early uh, attempt of critical race theory to understand the situation of the possible rights United States.
1: So what is true is that there's no reason to think that in the 1970s, all of a sudden racism in the US will completely disappear so that the ending the government sanctioned and enforced racial discrimination. That's a huge step forward. But the idea that now now there will be no racist attitudes and our racist policies or approaches and policies that were heavily impacted by past racial thinking or racialized thinking, there's no reason to think, like, uh, sort of like, if we've just snapped our fingers now and it will all disappear. So that they're they're ending the legal discrimination. There still would be a period for which um, people's individual attitudes have to fully change. And it's not as though when one thinks about the turmoil around race in the '60s it's not like there were just a handful of people still trying to hold on to segregations on these were large swaths of the population who were uh, fighting on behalf of still trying to maintain legal segregation so the idea that you get that it's ended now all of a sudden all those people will be just you would think that they, they won't think at all in terms of race that that's a fantasy, but I think unfortunately what happened is that the thinking about race and but more broad, about race in America, but more broadly society as such, social problems and therefore social solutions became uh, heavily collectivized. It what this was already a problem, I think, in the sixties that part of the civil rights is focused more on the individual, the individual's thinking what a proper attitudes would be. I think Martin Luther King at his best is focusing on that. It's part of what he's remembered for that he wants his kids judged by the content of their character. And that means like they're individual characters. And you might think like one of your kids isn't very nice and the other one is nice. You're looking at them as individuals who've made something of themselves or who haven't. And that was the best aspect of the civil rights movement in the 60s. But there were aspects of thinking of it too much that you're, um, what's important about you comes from your group membership in one way or another. And it doesn't have to just be racial groups. And that we have to think about all the problems through a group lens, or as we would put it more in a, in a objectivist terminology through a collective lens that comes to become more and more dominant and the more you think that's the right approach there is something fundamentally wrong with america america is the country of the individual like at its best its ideals are individualistic and if you think that there's something wrong or at best like passe about that you're gonna rebel against the essence of America. the, The Delgado book, what you gave the characterization of CRT as a movement. Another thing it says, and this is like early on in the book, they're setting the context for how to think about what critical race theory is. This is part of what it says, or part of what the authors say, quote, CRT questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, Legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. Close quote. And you were talking a little bit about the neutrality kind of issue. Like this is there's this is the perspective that there's something fundamentally wrong, not we have to continue progress. It didn't, we didn't reach the ideal in the 70s. But it, we were getting better, and we have to continue that progress. This is now, no, there's something fundamentally wrong. And I put it that it really is what it what's fundamentally wrong with America is it's individualistic. and it should not be we should be collectivist. And that that it requires a radical transformation
0: of America. So let us now give the four main themes of critical race theory. And let's try and see what are the ideas that gave rise to them. So critical race theory to continue the historical journey at the end of the 80s gets, let's say, its label, gets its name. And legal theory meets other movements such as radical feminism or critical studies. So we're going to give you the main, the four main themes of critical race theory. And then we're going to try to see what are the ideas behind them. So. Theme number one, racism is omnipotent. This means that racism is a standard, racism is a given, and it can be seen not only in legal structures, but also in how institutions operate. What kind of institutions? Universities, uh, sports clubs. There's discussions, for example, about... uh, Uh, the team uh, Redskins, and that this perpetuates uh, a a racist past, although that's a very obvious example, corporations. So all major institutions are under, uh, there's an undercurrent of racist relationships going through their operation, even if the people who are involved with them might not be racist themselves. Second major point, Oh sir, yeah, do you want to give a commentary on each one? No, well, I was just
1: going to say you put it that that racism's omni omnipotent. That I think you mean omnipresent. So it, it's Sorry, like omnipresent. it's all over the place. And that's yes. it's it's like everywhere you look, you'll see some real aspect of how racism is structuring things. That's that's part of and it.
0: And as a very prevalent proponent of CRT put it, the question is not did racism take place? The question is how did racism manifest itself in that particular situation? So actually let us comment on a point by point so that we don't overwhelm our audience. So where does this idea come that you might not be racist, but there might be racist relationship being perpetuated through a structure or through an institution. So when we hear the term structure, our mind can go first of all to structuralism. Now structuralism starts from linguistics, but it also has an expression in sociology or politics. An example is Althusser. What does structuralism say in very simple terms? So Althusser talks about how a subject, which means a person, a type of person is created by an institution so institutions in a way give birth to particular subjects so when you go to school you enter school as let's say Nikos you exit school as a particular subject which means as someone with specific ideas and with a a specific in a specific position in a relation of hierarchy Someone then called Foucault takes this and push, it a, a, a play, and push it a step further. You don't, these relationships that are created by different structures exist throughout society. So it's not only the simple thing that I go to school and I get trained to be a good worker, let's say. But whenever two people interact with each other, there is a relationship of power among them, which means that by the way they interact with each other, they create this polarity of, for example, student, teacher, black, white, or uh, any other relationship of power. And power is not something which is held in the hands of, let's say, one particular class. So for example, power is not something that lies, that is to be found on the whip of the slave owner power is everywhere and even in a society where no one holds this whip this relationship of racial hierarchy of racial power is still present now we would need a whole hour to discuss Foucault and power but I think Onkar the the impact of Foucault in this idea of the omnipresence of power is clear in critical race theory
1: yes I think That's definitely true. And the idea that you can think of institutions as that they embed racist ideas and a racist outlook and that that can endure even after you, the people involved might not overtly express racist ideas and attitudes that i think is a real phenomenon and it's it's not restricted to race that one can and and racial issues one can talk about a um a system and an institution as embedding certain ideas even if the people there don't fully realize like this is how the institution is actually functioning this is what it actually cares about this is how you actually get promoted in the institution like if one talks about a, the example I often use because it's familiar to a lot of people. A corporate culture is a, a set of ideas and attitudes embedded in a business. And sometimes it will be disavowed. They'll say, oh, no, we only hire on merit and so on. But when you see what's actually happening in the company, it's the favorites because they never question the boss and so on. They get promoted. And so- Now, that company usually doesn't do very well if that's the kind of corporate culture that's embedded in it. But you can make that distinction that when they talk about how do they hire and so on, they say one thing and how they actually act is different. But you need evidence for this. And part of what is, I think, startling when you look at something like critical race theories, for some things, there's real argument and evidence brought forth. Like you brought up the redlining. I think most people today think, yeah, there was this kind of practice. It is a remnant of racial attitudes, but real evidence is brought forth by like, look how they were making loans, look where they went and where they didn't, how they divided it up and so on. That is very different than just saying, you can go in and assuming that there's gonna be massive uh, racial policies or attitudes that have lingered in the institutions. No, you can't just assume that you need some real evidence and argument and that that they don't feel that need. Um, I think that actually is part of the theory, as we'll talk about. Um, I mean, I already foreshadowed it. If you're critiquing enlightenment rationalism, well, enlightenment rationalism is what taught us that you do need evidence and arguments and you need to put it forward to, to, to reach a conclusion. And if you're starting to reject that, then the fact that, well, you have a certain viewpoint, but it's not backed by arguments and evidence. Is that a problem? If you've discarded enlightenment rationals.
0: And also there's this tendency to blame Foucault for everything, but in a way there, the way CRT used the theory of power is even I would say unjust to Foucault himself, because Foucault, for example, gave an interesting example. He said, the torturer and the person who is interrogated. In some ways, the person who is interrogated has some form of power vis-a-vis the interrogator because they hold the information which is very much uh, needed to the interrogator. People can think of the scene in The Dark Knight with Batman and Joker. Joker knows when the explosion is going to take place, and he's laughing at the face of Batman. But when Critical Relay Theory says relationship of racial power are present whenever two people in the United States are interacting, where exactly is that power? What type of power are we talking about? So this is why some people call it something close to a conspiracy theory, because there, where, there is quite often there is no evidence, there's no smoking gun, to put it in simple terms that something is taking place here, which is manifesting a relationship of a hierarchy, of inequity, or of injustice. But let's go to the second point, because I think it's the most interesting one. It touched upon the epistemology of critical race theory. And it says that one's identity or one's status makes them more competent to see racism and to talk about racism. So some people should talk about racism. Other people should stay at the back and keep quiet. Why? Because their identity does not allow them to see the issue in its proper function. Here we're talking about an epistemology which has various names. Standpoint theory is one, and it basically says that the way you view the world has to do with who you are. A low-hanging fruit is to say that this is a continuation of the idea of false consciousness by Marx, although Marx didn't really say that if you're a worker, you see the world in a different way, and if you're a Uh, and if you're a boss in in a different way. This is simplification. But standpoint theory makes this point clear. Notice, not that you are better informed. It's one thing to say that if I live, let's say, in the ghetto, I understand social exclusion in a better way. No, it says that even if you possess the information, your lived experience or lack of it does not allow you to understand what is happening. Now, what are the theoretical movements that played uh, played a role in this idea of standpoint theory becoming prevalent? Basically, every movement that questions our capacity to make sense of the world by the use of our mind. There have been many movements who consider the idea of reason as a West-centric approach, for example, post-colonial theory, or who consider that people because their are brainwashed by the capitalist system are in one dimensional thinking, mostly Frankfurt School and Marcuse had this point of view. So there are many, many different theoretical uh, tendencies that question the idea that we can make sense of the world by the use of our mind, that the world is graspable, objectively graspable. So then we find ourselves in the field of lived experience, and standpoint theory. So Ongar, that's a very important point, right? Epistemology plays a a big role in the worldview of CRT. The more you take
1: that view seriously, the more it is true that you're you're rejecting enlightenment rationalism. You're rejecting the enlightenment view that an individual as an individual can understand the world. And as you said, that can include trying to talk to people who have been um, not at the forefront of when histories are written and so on and ask, well, what actually, what was their experience? What was their take on it? What do they think happened? And a a real historian should do that. It does real investigation, doesn't just take the story. When, When they say history is written by the winners, it doesn't have to be, but it is true, there's a tendency to hear of the side that one, that's all you hear. And a real historian has to think about, okay, well, what's not being said, what's difficult to dig out here? A journalist has to do the same, not just listen to what the government spokesman is saying, but what like what's actually happening. And and but that's not the same as saying it's impossible to figure that out. It is part of what's figuring it out, but any individual can do that if they're proceeding rationally and here what you have is much more it's a collectivist spin on epistemology so the standpoint is really your group's standpoint you're and you're a member of multi multiple groups and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, in a moment i think but it's so it's not really that every individual just knows their own experience. You can't communicate with any other individual because they have a different life, different experience. So It's much more like, what's your experience as a black woman? But that's, it's it's so group or collectivized. And that is like, what we have here is collectivism all the way down in the way that they look at people. And that includes in terms of thinking like how do people form their ideas, their thoughts, and the belief. It's well, what you have to look what group they're in, and that tells you. Um, and that it that really is a rejection of the Enlightenment approach to knowledge and to reason and to think.
0: So let's concretize this in in terms of how such an epistemology can fuel a movement. So we talked about Black Lives Matter. So in many of the cases that gave rise Black Lives Matter, for example, uh, with uh, the case of the Ferguson riots, or in in the case of George Floyd, the question was, was there any actual evidence that Derek Sovin was racist? So, And you can bring evidence, or you can say, look, a court of law came up with this and this uh, uh, finding. But they will say that you are actually don't you 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 cannot understand how a black person feels when they come into contact with a police officer so you can tell them look based on the percentage of black people who commit crime there is not a disproportionate let's say violence of the police vis-a-vis black people but they will say yeah but you don't you cannot understand because you're not a black person or put differently you can discuss with a woman and say look there is no such a thing as rape culture if i make a rape joke i'm gonna be expelled from polite society rapes have gone down and it says yes but you cannot understand what it means to walk in the street and have to look behind and be afraid to wear a mini skirt at night so uh, shouldn't there be some empathy onker to someone who says yeah but you cannot understand what it is to walk at night and see and listen to a man walking behind you or seeing a police officer at the corner?
1: I think there should be empathy. There should be at least the attempt to understand and that attempt to understand and to be objective. One of the things you have to think about is, am I just unaware or maybe even blind to certain things because I don't directly experience them and my friends don't directly experience them, that doesn't mean they're not real. It just means I haven't worked to put myself in a position to figure out, is this real or not? And when you're thinking about social issues, for instance, you have to make a real active effort to think about this, to investigate it, and to think, are there reasons in the way that I'm, acting, what I'm exposing myself to. And so I'm just not becoming aware with something that's actually going on. And in regard to with the uh, Blacks and police in America, this is one of the things that I think in the um, atmosphere of some of these police shootings and the, the kind of activists, telling us how to process this i think a lot of it was wrong a lot of it they don't seem interested in what the actual facts were like what does the investigation of the michael brown shooting show and some of the other investigations but i actually think on all sides people aren't particularly interested in the facts and i'll say something about that in the moment but i think in terms of just the american um psyche And sort of the normal person, it came as news to many people that Black parents have discussions with their teenage and largely, but I think not exclusively, largely their teenage sons about how to act if they ever encounter police and there's any kind of, kind of, even if not confrontation, just sort of interaction and interchange about this. And that it's easy to not be aware of that fact that th- th- this seems like a normal kind of conversation that people have with their black teenage sons and it's important to be aware of that and to think okay like why would they? is it really they never have adverse experiences with the police that one might you might not be certain but you might think yeah this seemed racial it seemed it, And if you're unaware of that, you have to work to become aware of that. And one of people's reactions, I think was like, maybe what they've been complaining about, there's more to it than what I sort of, I just dismissed it, didn't really think about it. That's a real issue, but it's not as though you can't understand it just because you're not black. You have to work to understand it. Um, And people aren't working and it's on all sides, I think. So it's true from one, the Michael Brown, shooting in Ferguson. There was an FBI investigate among other departments of the government. And their findings were, no, this wasn't a bad shooting. It certainly wasn't racially motivated or whatever. It, it, it exonerated the police um, and th- through real suspicion on Michael Brown that he was acting aggressively and so on. But at the very same day, there was also a report from the FBI that they found a lot of racism in the Ferguson Police Department. And both can be true. And I think in this case, both are true. So that, that Blacks would be experiencing it as, like there's racism on the part of the police. The FBI found evidence of that in the Ferguson Police Department. But that this particular shooting, you can't just go from, okay, there's some racism in the police, so this was a racial shooting and it, uh, and he was gunned down because he was Black. You need evidence for both of those. and. The part of what's I think bad about the whole CRT is it because it's challenging or rejecting Enlightenment rationalism, it's rejecting this kind of need for evidence and for real careful thinking. And then you see it like the reaction to it also isn't careful thinking. Like it's and it part of our culture wars is I often or almost always think
0: I'm not on either side here. And what a shame that uh, you cannot bring justice in any other way except from using reason and figuring out what happened and what should happen based on some standards. But again, talking about theories that had an effect on CRT, there's people call it postmodernism, other call it more related to poststructuralism, but what some of these f- theories that were very fashionable had in uh, common was that our understanding of these supposed dichotomies, good, bad, just, unjust, reasonable, unreasonable, emotional, in a, emotional in terms of not thinking clearly, emotional, rational. They say that all these things are made up. They say that these concepts are artificial in terms of, they not in terms of that they're the result of an understanding of a thinking mind, but they are the uh, result of someone with a, an agenda of power. So, someone telling you, for example, your mode of thinking where you don't believe in reason is wrong is someone who wants to colonize you or to someone who wants to dominate on you. So, again, we, we could have whole episodes on this, and we did whole classes on post structures and how this idea that concepts are unrelated to reality and arbitrary in terms of uh, expressing relations of power. These theories supposedly wanted to deliver justice, but again, justice is impossible if you don't understand what is good and what is bad and uh, what is true and what is not true. But let us move now to the third central theme to critical race theory. I mentioned it earlier. It's the interest convergence theory by Derrick Bell. What is interest convergence theory? A theory that says that any progress in terms of racial justice is a result of the ruling elite throwing some crumbs to the black population. Example, why did the Civil Rights Act happen in 1964? Because it was a time of the Cold War, it was a time that a lot of the youth in the United States was alienated, and therefore the white elite wanted to show some, uh, to to, to show its more humane face. Now, let me tell you what I really find appalling in this. It takes completely away the agency of the millions of black people who protested, who gave their life, who gave their energy, and not only of black people, but everyone who fought for racial justice in the 60s. It basically says that whatever you do, there are these overlords on the top that have your fate in your hands. It, it reminds me the conspiracy theories of the right who talk about the globalists or the world economic forum or whatever. So my biggest problem here, I will say it's a it's a problem of agency, taking away agency from black people and seeing them as victims. Having said that, I think this is almost the only way you can see someone if you throw away the idea that human beings have the capacity to reason and have the free will to act. Without free will and the capacity to choose your path, you are going to be someone who is a, who is at the hands of superior forces.
1: Yeah, and that's again, part of the collectivism and how deep the collectivism runs that they don't see individuals with agency. And as you said, they don't see it because they don't really think of the individual as capable of thinking for him or herself and therefore choosing and deciding as an individual. It's all seen as what's your group membership and how is that determining you in a certain way? So here for this claim, uh, I think the, the, one, a different way of putting the same point you're making is that it's uh, the causality is incomplete. So again, I think when you read some of these scholars here who are the, the, at the, the leadership of the uh, critical race theory, some of their articles, they do bring some evidence to think that part of what the government is doing, the US government, post-World War II is they're worried that the people being discriminated against, so you're essentially Blacks, but it wasn't only Blacks, but essentially Blacks, are they're going to not be content with this continued uh, discrimination and post-World War II, so you have a lot of Black people in the army who now fought for the country, They've also seen, many of them, Europe, which was at that time less discriminatory on the part against Blacks than the US was. And that like we're not going to stand for this when we come back. And for the people who survive, many of them, I'm sure, rightly have a sense of like we accomplished something and I was able to be a soldier and so on. And they build up some real self-confidence and self-esteem. And that they're not just going to come back to the U.S. and accept everything. Oh, yeah, we're just going to go back to how everything was. And that some of the, um, in effect, for, for some of the people that they're making concessions to this, they don't want to end segregation, but they're also scared if they keep it just exactly how it was, that they will have a real rebellion on their side. I think there is evidence that that's part of what is going on. But as you said, if you now make that, that's everything that's going on then you stripped people and many courageous individuals of the agency they were exerting in challenging these ideas. And you can be black or white and and challenging segregation ideas. So it wasn't only that, but again, for a collectivist, it will only be that because he doesn't really see the, the, or dismisses the individual agency and thinking and challenging. And so they see Bell as it's very, there's a sort of cynicism to it, but the cynicism really just is an expression of the collectivism. It seems cynical because he doesn't see the individual, but given the theoretical approach, they
0: really don't see the individual. And it takes also away much of what, for example, he himself had accomplished. I think he was the first uh, black, uh, Uh, professor at Harvard or what Obama, for example, has achieved. And there's often this cynicism when people who are close to critical race theory talk about tokenism. Oh, when you talk about this person as the first black general or the first black member of the Supreme Court just as tokenism. So another characteristic of critical race theory is this impossibility of a reconciliation or impossibility of progress. Stefancis and Delgado in their book, Critical on Critical Race Theory, they have a very interesting thought experiment. They say, imagine there is a magic pill that would eliminate racism or as they they put it somewhere else, there's this magic workshop. You attend this workshop and it's so brilliant, you stop being a racist. It's a workshop on racial equality and it plays in all the televisions at the airports, at the gyms, everywhere. Every single citizen sees it. And then they ask, would this mean that the position of black people would become significantly better? And the answer they point to is no. So what could then make their position significantly better? An active anti-racism. Now, what is active anti-racism? To understand what is active anti-racism for critical race theory, we need to understand how they understand racism. So for them, racism is, I think this is from Kendi, a marriage of racist policies and racist ideas that produces and normalizes racial inequality. So policies and ideas that produce and normalize. Now, already we're in a vague territory. Produce and normalize racial inequality. What is a racial inequality? Here's the cuts. Racial inequality is unequal results. So for example, and this is from Kendi. Candy says, there are two explanations you can give on why, for example, black students achieve less than white students. The one explanation is that they're inherently stupid. If you do so, you're clearly a racist, end of discussion. The other possible explanation is that there is a racist structure a racist undercurrent there is some racism at play there in which case if you don't want to be a racist or an ally of racism you have to actively fight it so Kennedy says there is no neutrality you're either a racist or an anti-racist so and Some people would say, what about the issue of uh, of culture, of, let's say, a particular community having a particular culture which makes its members sue themselves as victims, for example, and this has uh, an impact on uh, their life or that doesn't uh, support, uh, doesn't encourage educational achievement. Candy would say there, no, this is a racist statement. You are just, again, an ally to racism. So actively racist or which means trying to put forward policies that will bring inequality of results or racist. Any comments on this on
1: it's another manifestation of the collectivism so the whole perspective again is groups and are the groups equal and in this case it's racial groups and wherever. Kendi looks whether it's about housing policy, whether it's about education. So it has to be the the proportions for owner-occupied houses or for people in law school or people being admitted to medical school. It has to be the same percentage as in the general population. And if it's not, that's evidence of racism. And that that's a completely collectivistic framework of looking at it. And indeed, it's this focus on what it is, is just, do we have equal or unequal results? This is egalitarianism applied to racial issues and racial analysis. And this is one of the, especially in America, but I think worldwide, one of the main currents, another main current for understanding critical race theory it's arising when egalitarianism is arising. So I had said that part of there's people, and including the critical race theorists, some of them thinking the progress is slowing, and even some of them even think it's reversing in the '70s from the the progress that was made in the '60s. They don't see that yeah but the ideas are shifting and we're shifting even more away from individualism towards collectivism and that that was not just on racial issues so Rawls becomes really really well known and this is what puts egalitarianism on the intellectual and academic map it's a theory of justice that he publishes in the early 70s and that whole focus is that when we think about justice We have to think about it as a quality of results. And any deviation from that is justified only if the, you can put it kind of in a more religious terminology, the downtrodden or putting it in more contemporary terminology, um, the most marginalized are the best off. And if you can't see in critical race theory, this whole perspective of a quality of results and that our whole focus is trying to find the most marginalized person. And they have to, what justice consists of, of having policies where they're the best off, what those policies do to other people and so on, that's not the fundamental. The fundamental is uh, in Rawls terminology, the least well off is doing the best. That's what our whole focus on social institutions and structures should be. And that comes on the scene, like becomes comes on the scene and quickly becomes dominant in intellectual uh, circles with Rawls. And you have to see, I think, CRT as flowing out of that.
0: And it's intellectual cousin, sometimes coming from the same people, which is the intersectionality theory which says that you have to understand how some people are disadvantaged based on many different identities that they possess. And this is something that again, there's merit to it. For example, it's a, it might be difficult to understand someone who let's say has a, a, a mental disability and at the same time is on a, is on a minority for which there's a lot of uh, prejudice. But they don't stop there. There's also this idea that then we need to put aside things like, uh, for example, equality of rights and give particular privileges to that person, but privileges that have to do with doing away with things as, for example, uh, equality in the face of the law. So some critical race theory scholars point out that the question we need to ask when we pass legislation is, what is going to be its effect on people of the lower strata. Notice, not to take away some injustice that is putting them down, but also, for example, uh, the fact that uh, uh, you you can evict someone if they don't pay your rent or if they vandalize your house, well, this would have a bad effect on someone who is potentially uh, of a particular disadvantaged background, Therefore, you should never be able to evict him. That's a a simple example. Now, because before we go to the questions uh, from our uh, our superchatters and our audience, let me ask you the final question, Onkar, which is, how do we deal with people who are idealistic, who, when they want to address racism, The thing that they see out there is critical race theory. And therefore, they say, look, racism is bad. Critical race theory is the most radically, in their mind, anti-racist tool that there is out there. Therefore, eh, I'm for justice. Therefore, I'm for critical race theory. How should one approach them? And also, could it be that the reason that critical race theory is the only game in town is that perhaps advocates of uh, freedom or even advocates of reason have had maybe a blind spot when it comes to racism and have not adequately addressed racial inequalities from a historical perspective or things that are still happening today, inequalities that still are happening today. Injustices actually, not inequalities.
1: Yes, I I think in any free or semi-free country, so that definitely includes America of the 20th century and America of the 21st century. Bad theories win because of an intellectual vacuum or uh, uh, sometimes it's worse than just a vacuum, it's real bankruptcy. That, so, I, and if you take on the critical race theory and take something like the Lindsay and Pluckrose book, I think it's much better on criticizing some of the elements of critical race theory that has to be criticized, including the collective, some of the collectivistic aspects of it. And they talk about it in terms of that the, this theory is erasing the individual. But if you ask, do they have something really positive to say about well, what makes an individual an individual? How do you defend individualism? Why is individualism the correct perspective? They have much less to say. Now, it's not their focus in the book, but there's some elements of that in the book, and I find it not at all convincing. And that's part of what it looks like to have a vacuum, that if you don't have some real strong defenses of individualism, and and then more specifically here, of thinking of the issue of racism from an individualist individualistic perspective and people really grappling with, like, how do we think about race in America? How do we think about, say, the post-Civil War period? Why was it that the Civil War was not enough, not nearly enough? To push racism out of America. Like you get the reconstruction fails, then you get the segregation, the Jim Crow laws. And they it's not like they endure for five years or 10 years. It like this is decades of this. And you need to understand this and you need people to talk about it. It but yes, like there were there was real racism in America and it endured past the Civil War and how to think about that, what its effects were, why it's hard to drive uh, racism out. If you don't have the better, more individualistic people talking about this, then you're just ripe for um, someone who's coming from a, a wrong. And I think in various ways here, when you're rejecting the enlightenment, it's you're at the level of corrupt, approach who are going to talk about the issue and they're going to talk about some real facts but they're going to conceptualize and process and analyze those facts from a very bad perspective but if that's the only if it seems like that's the only game in town you've got a huge problem um and i think that's part of what happened that there weren't enough people really talking honestly and being interested in thinking about race in America, that it made it easy for people to say, look, like this is being sort of whitewashed, denied. Here's how to think about it. And it's like every institution is racist and it doesn't matter what the people say. And and that's not true. But the other kind of just having a vacuum doesn't work at either. And I think the best thing here, in terms of it's not true more widely about this kind of anti Enlightenment v- viewpoint, but it is true, I think, s- more specifically with critical race theory. There are people now pushing back and engaging with the issues and having better things to say. Someone like a, to say someone who's now well known because he writes uh, for the popular press, has come out with a book, John McWhorter, is it's, he's not just sort of uh, whitewashing the issues of race and racial problems in America, but he's certainly uh, arguing strenuously that this is not the right way to think about them. And it is, it's is—it's like not close to the right way. There's something corrupt here in the way it's been uh, thought about, talked about, conceptualized. And that's important that now, like we have a less of a vacuum Than there was
0: Right. So again, it took us 16 weeks to cover all these uh, things for our class in the Ironman University. So let me move to some of uh, the comments from our audience. Many thanks to our super chatters. Thank you, Jonathan, Mark. Thank you, Marilyn. Adam says that quite often submitting peacefully to the police is, uh, is uh, is not enough. Bonnie asked about the Civil Rights Act. We did a podcast with Onkar for New Idea Live on close to Martin Luther King's Day in January where we talked about the Civil Rights Act. I would encourage Bonnie to check check this out or to join me in Clubhouse in five minutes or so where we're going to continue the discussion. But here's a good question from another good question from one of our friends in Zoom. He asks, what is your opinion of state laws that attempt to ban the teaching of critical race theory in public schools, and we already mentioned the the Sanctis, the governor of Florida, but there has been a lot of discussion about uh, not allowing the teaching of CRT in schools, in public schools. Now, the the fact that we're talking about public schools makes it more complicated because we'd agree in a private school, uh, it's the right of the parents and the teacher to teach what they want. But what about public schools, Onkar?
1: Yes, so I, the first thing to say is I do not think public schools should exist. And one of the reasons is this kind of issue. You live in a fantasy if you think, oh, yeah, there can be government uh, schools, but the government is not going to set the curriculum of those schools. Who's going to set the curriculum if it's not the government who is the controller and viewed as like these are public So it's viewed as the owner of the schools. That's who's going to set the curriculum. And this happens every day in every school district, in every state of the country. Government officials are making decisions about what textbooks are going to be used, what the standards will be. I mean, think of the various just at the federal level of George Bush proposing standards, No Child Left Behind Act, we're gonna have this and that, and they're gonna be tested in this way and that way. This is government controlling the curriculum. And I'm adamantly opposed to government controlling curriculum like this and having the opportunity to indoctrinate people. So there's something inherently deeply problematic and unjust about public schools. But if you have public schools, as I said, it's a fantasy to think that the government doesn't set the curriculum. So the government does set the curriculum and it certainly can could say that this is what's gonna be taught. And so this is what won't be taught. In this particular situation, unfortunately, it's heavily politicized. So I do not think that what is going on is that you have people really thinking about what's a good education for these students what should they be learning there's no time to learn about this or these books aren't teaching what's true it's much too much scoring political points i'm gonna win votes and i think Desantis is like i'm gonna win votes by posing as i'm so opposed to this and i won't let your child be indoctrinated by this yeah your child won't learn how to read in public schools and so on That doesn't bother me, but that they might have a book about CRT, yet that I'm going to be outraged by. And And it's political posturing, not real thinking about the child's education. And that's a travesty, that it is like, if it doesn't bother a politician, that public schools are failing in general, the idea that he actually cares about, or is there some book that's teaching some element of CRT or not, that's just a political charade.
0: So unfortunately, we've run out of uh, time. Uh, There are some more questions that we're sorry we didn't have time to address, Uh, but we will continue. I will continue on Clubhouse for uh, some uh, more discussion. So you can join us. You can join us there. You can find the uh, Ayn Rand uh, Club. And also we'll discuss some of the things we didn't have time to discuss, such as ECRT quote neo-Marxism, which is the favorite conservatives uh, trope. But if you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the Ayn Rand Institute's YouTube channel, share, leave a comment. All this obviously helps the helps the algorithm. Also, uh, let me say, and to, to encourage people to go and check out the Ayn Rand University, check out this module that we offer with Onkar The Road to Critical race theory. Again, 16 weeks going from the Frankfurt School to the critical race theory and the reactions to it, all the movements that led to it. We had a great time with our students this year. It's going to repeat the, the module. We're going to repeat it starting in October. So check out this and also check out the many other new modules in the curriculum of the Ayn Rand University. Tal Sfani, the CEO of ARI, announced them two weeks ago in Onkar. Check out also on YouTube, his talk, fascinating project and fascinating things happening in the Ayn Rand University. So I think that is all. And uh, many thanks to all. Oh, next week, we have uh, our QA on objectivism, on objectivism, the, on the philosophy on objectivism. So send your question if you have one to newideals.org. Also, we accept suggestions comments what is a topic that you would like to see us cover at again send it to newideal at aynrand.org so I think that is all for today Onkar thank you very much I hope we offered a, an objective account of a critical race theory discussion is going to continue in clubhouse many thanks to everyone and see you soon thank you. bye bye
1: great thanks Nico. bye